Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground, alternative activists in our talk radio, speaking truth to our and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro, that's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? It's just about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent fairly, America failed. Put them in the lowest paying jobs. Put them outside the equal protection of the law. Kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God bless America. No, no, no. Not God bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. Transforming truth truth to power. One broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Nearly half of all black children live beneath the poverty line, a figure almost identical to that which existed on the day Martin Luther King was assassinated. 1.2 billion people in the world live on less than a dollar a day. And every year, 6 million children die from malnutrition, and over 11 million children die from preventable diseases. So those of us who got a little something, think about it. P. Diddy may have his own clothing line and a great Manhattan address, but far more blacks are moving into America's prisons than into the middle class. Blacks are incarcerated in America at four times the incarceration rate of blacks in South Africa during the apartheid era. On any given day, about one in three black males is in prison, on probation, or on parole. Close to two million children in the United States have at least one parent in state or federal prison. And that number is rising fast. Clarence Thomas may sit on the highest court in the land, but what does that mean to the masses? Prosecutors in America 
are three times more likely to recommend the death penalty with a black defendant than with a white one, even if their alleged crimes are identical. The, uh, the question of whether or not the debt has really been paid by the blood that was lost during the course of the Civil War. And uh, I think there's, there's, uh, there's, that should be factored in. I mean, the, 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 uh, the, moral, the moral claim that's associated with ending slavery is, is a very important one. But on the other hand, uh, had slavery not been instituted, had not been made a, a legal dimension of American life, there would have been no need to do that at all. Uh, so, uh, and furthermore, there was always the possibility that white male America, which white male America were the only individuals who could participate in the political process formally and at that point in time, white male America could have decided to end slavery without resorting to warfare. Uh, there were proposals afoot for compensated uh, emancipation of the slaves. Uh, that was a possibility that was, was seriously and passionately advanced by Abraham Lincoln. So there were options other than going to war, they were not taken. The other argument against reparations that has gained the most attention is that the people currently asked to pay had nothing to do with the injustices in the past. Yeah. How do you respond to that? Well, there's actually uh, uh, several responses to that. Uh, first and foremost uh, is, is the fact that uh, the injustices of, of the past are, are not as distant as uh, we are accustomed to, to thinking. If, if we were to thinking about, if we were thinking about slavery itself, uh, my sons are the fifth generation out of slavery. And so if you think of it from a generational standpoint, uh, it's not that, that far in the past. There are some families where there are still living members who are actually only the third generation from slavery. Those individuals are 100 years in age or, or older. But, uh, but again, from a generational standpoint, it's not that far back. But now if we also address the fact that subsequent to slavery, the United States did not immediately become a true democracy, but practiced 100 years of political exclusion of African Americans uh, through the Jim Crow system, uh, then we're talking about uh, a, a system that did not go out of existence in any formal way until 1964. And with respect to schools and school, deseg school desegregation, school desegregation really doesn't come into practice in the United States until the early 1970s. Uh, so now we're not talking about very, a very distant past, and we're not talking about uh, huge numbers of Americans who had nothing to do with, uh, with, with that process. Uh, but I would also add that for individuals who are more recent immigrants, I would argue that when one immigrates to a country, you immigrate to its history, and that you immigrate to the responsibilities and obligations that that society has, as well as the opportunities and benefits that it provides you. Whatever we are, we still need an action program that will eliminate these evils that are in our community. Do you consider yourself militant? <laughs> I consider myself Malcolm. <laughs> And now, Janice Graham.
Good evening, everyone, and thank you for being with us here tonight at Our Common Ground. Of course, we are the sanctuary for black truth. There is no fear of where and how we see through our third lens in America. Thank you for being with us, and we want to start out by wishing you a very healthy and joyful holiday season. We hope, as we always do, that you will have enough. Tonight at Our Common Ground, we're going to be talking about a very painful painful reality of our existence as black people. But before we begin, I want to let you know that we will not be here on next Saturday night. Even though I'm always listening for you, I'm always at OCGinfo at OurCommonGround.com or Janice at OurCommonGround.com. We have our Facebook page, and we want to make sure that you join us on Facebook and subscribe to our Facebook page, which um, we are always providing loads of information. History and our reality is does matter. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Janice OCG. Our hashtag is Talk That Matters. And we want you, if you're listening on a smart device and you'd like to join our chatters in our chat room, you certainly may do so by coming to blogtalkradio.com backslash or forward slash OCG uh, to join us. And we thank all of you who are in our chat room and hope that in this very painful discussion tonight with someone who is not new to Our Common Ground, who has been an Our Common Ground friend and voice for many, many years, uh, that you will um, provide some input uh, and discussion uh, in this discourse. Uh, many of you are aware that the wealthiest Americans, members of the Forbes 400 list, they saw their net worths increase by 736% on average in the past six years. If those trends persist for another 30 years, the average white family's net worth will grow by $18,000 per year, but black and Hispanic households would only see theirs grow by $750 and 2250 per year, respectively. Um, many of the studies look at financial wealth in terms of stocks and bonds and the like, real estate and capital business. And it, they exclude durable goods like cars and consumer appliances. We have had our awareness on this show over the many years, especially during the uh, Obama and Bush administration 
uh, heightened and focused on what we call income inequality. But while they are related, wealth inequality is far more pronounced. And tonight at Our Common Ground, we're going to be talking about the 400 years of slavery, segregation, and institutionalized discrimination in the labor and housing markets, in education, that assists everyone to build wealth, and how it created a wealth gap that we see. Tonight at Our Common Ground, I am so pleased to be able to have back with us Dr. William Dougherty. I, I, I don't have enough time to really give you an idea of who this man is. He is Arts and Sciences Professor of Public Policy Studies and Economics, Chair of African and, and African American Studies, and Director of the Research Network on Racial and Ethnic Inequalities at Duke University. Previously, um, he served as director of the Institute of African American Research, director of the Moore Undergraduate Research Apprenticeship Program, and director of the Undergraduate Honors Program in Economics and director of Graduate Studies at the University of North Carolina. His research focuses on inequality by race, class and ethnicity, stratification, economic schooling, and the racial achievement gap, north-south theories of trade and development, skin shade, and labor market, and that is a lot. We are always pleased to have Dr. William Sandy Garrity with us. He is the Samuel Dubois Cook Professor of Public Policy African and African American Studies and Economics and the Director of the Duke Consortium on Social Equity at Duke University. He has served as Chair of the Department of African American Studies and was the Founding Director of the Research Network on Racial and Ethnic Inequalities. He is one of the co-authors of the National Asset Scorecard and Communities of Color uh, Publication Study, an Urban Planning Ethnics Political Science Study, uh, Statistics, Economics, Sociology, and we have posted this study on our Facebook page, and the title is Umbrellas Don't Make It Rain, Why Studying and Working Hard Isn't Enough for black Americans, and we're going to be talking about that and all of the issues of the metrics of black wealth. Dr. William Darity, thank you so much, and welcome back to Our Common Ground. Good to have you back. It's great to be back, Janice. Thank you for having me on. I, I have to say, though, uh, my life has changed a little bit since since we last talked, Uh I'm, I'm no longer the chair of African and African-American studies at Duke. It's actually my colleague, Tommy DeFrance. And uh, the two hats that I wear, as you mentioned, 
are both named after Samuel Bois Cook, who now lives in Atlanta with his family. Uh, he's the he was the first black faculty member at Duke, and then for many years he was president of Dillard University. And so I have a professorship that's named after him, and I also direct a research center that is named after him, the Samuel Bois Cook Center on Social Equity. Now, at one t- at one time, the last time we talked, you were out at Stanford uh, for a short time, Stanford University, and but you're back at Duke full time now. Yeah, I was at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford for a year, but that was uh, mm-hmm. 2011, 2012, and then has it uh, been know, that long? Good, it's been that long. <laughs> I had the good wow. last year to to be a visiting scholar at the Russell Sage Foundation, but I, yeah. I'm back at Duke now, full time. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, and at one time, you you are a past president of the National Economic Association. Yeah. Well, this tells you how old I am. I think I was the president <laughs> in the in the 1980s. <laughs> Well, yeah, you're yeah. you're I, you know you're, oddly enough, I'm I'm currently the president of the Association of Black Sociologists. So, uh, you know, even though I'm an economist, so uh, mm-hmm. it's 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 nice it's nice to be accepted by the sociologists. Well, I I think they they certainly go hand in hand as you and I have talked, and as your research has revealed over the years. Tonight, uh, Sandy, I really want to get into this issue of helping people. You know, people are very, very scared. Uh, I, I think that that we are less, as a people, living under the delusion that uh, our first African-American president was going to deliver uh, programs and policies which would assist us in somehow empowering our economic position. But that didn't happen. And it certainly certainly is not going to happen as I project over the next four years, if any of us survive the four years. But I, I really want our audience to understand this issue of the the black what black wealth means and what this gap, how this gap is in, uh, uh, translates in, into our lives. I, I think that it, it's very important for people to understand this as we get squeezed more and more or the gap widens uh, more. So uh, let's talk about what is black wealth. Well, maybe what, it would help to talk what about it is not. What, what what is wealth in the first place. Mm-hmm. Okay, because yeah, black black wealth is a type of wealth, but it's just less considerably less of it than white folks have. Uh, but no, but let's let's start with a, a definition of wealth. So I think the most the the most useful definition that I'm aware of is. It's the difference between the value of what you own and what you owe. 
So it's the difference between the value of your assets and your debts. And the wider that differential, the higher your level of wealth or what we also call net worth. Uh, This is different from income, which is most closely tied to earnings. Uh, We view income as more of a flow concept, a stream of resources that comes to you within a given time period, say a year. But wealth is the stock of resources that you've accumulated over time. And, um, and it's, in some ways, it's, it's far more important than the actual income stream that you receive in a given year because the larger your wealth level, the greater the degree of economic security you have. So uh, families that are confronted with medical emergencies, families that are confronted with the loss of a job by a major breadwinner in the family, um, families that are confronted with certain types of uh, unexpected disabilities of any family member, which creates another set of emergency expenses, families with higher levels of wealth can cope with all those circumstances much more easily. Uh, In addition, wealth gives you the capacity to have the kind of collateralized position that lets you seek loans to establish new businesses. Uh, It facilitates paying for a college education or a higher level of education without having to accumulate a significant amount of debt. Uh, I mean, I think wealth is a very, very powerful agent for, uh, for, for giving people a much wider range of opportunities than they have in the absence of the possession of high levels of wealth. And so, uh, so, so I think we should start there. And, and, and the, the key point that we want to make about race and wealth in the United States is that uh, black folks have very little of it. There are historical and contemporary reasons why that's the case. Uh, and those reasons have nothing to do with black folks making bad decisions or, or behaving in a spin, spin-thrift manner uh, has much more to do with the history of the way in which racism has operated in this country to deprive black households and families of the kinds of resources that would allow them to accumulate significant amounts of wealth. And so uh, if, if we think about the period between say 2005 and 2011, which includes the Great Recession. Uh, White wealth in 2005 at the median, for the median household, was about $142,000. For the median black household, it was about uh, $13,000. And for the median Latino household, it was about $20,000. By the time we look at uh, the year 2011, however, white household median net worth has fallen as a consequence of the Great Recession, fell to about $112,000. But black and Latino wealth uh, fell even more precipitously. Uh, Black wealth in 2011 was approximately $7,000 at the median, and it was about $8,000 for for Latinos Latino. at the media. Yeah. And so if we think about that, uh, well, but let me just say one more thing. Uh, essentially, if we look at the period of the Obama presidency, black wealth drops from about 10 cents per dollar of white wealth at the median to about six cents. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. These, and, these, and, are, and, these are enormous differences because we're, we're 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 just talking about the middle the middle household in the black and white distributions of wealth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that uh, people generally fall fall to is the issue of housing um, when looking at well, uh, our home ownership. When looking at wealth disparities, um, but there are other met- there are other elements within the metric of wealth that helps us be able to identify it. One one of those things is housing, but there are other the the, the uh, economic disparities. Let's talk about some of those. Let's talk about education and employment and income uh, and how public policy uh, has really uh, not eliminated uh, racial disparities in any of those areas. Uh, Say, for instance, uh, we always think about one of the ways in which to build wealth is through education. Well, okay, so so uh, I, I do want to try, and I think, I think this is something you're driving at. I want to keep the notions of income and wealth somewhat separate. I don't think that uh, the processes that generate income are the same processes that generate wealth. Uh, you know, one of the standard points of view is to argue that income and wealth are linked because the amount of wealth that you acquire is contingent on what you save out of your income. And so the higher your income or the higher your savings rate, the more wealth you have. Uh, But in our research, we have found that the most important driver of an individual or a household's wealth position is the amount of resources that they receive from the previous generations. Uh, In the jargon, we refer to these as intergenerational uh, transmission effects. That is to say, uh, you know, if if your parents have more wealth, you are more likely to have more wealth, uh, partially because your parents may leave you with an inheritance when they die. They may provide you with a substantial number of gifts while they're still living. Uh, and in in fact, if you live in a in a household with a higher level of wealth that has more economic security you'll have certain kinds of emotional and health advantages that somebody who's in a more stressful family situation would not be confronted with. So, uh, so the, the, the key factor for, uh, for wealth accumulation really is uh, what your parents and grandparents hold in the way of wealth. Right. So the, the okay. easiest way to become wealthy is to have wealthy parents. Uh, so so that's, that's very different from saying it's a consequence of your income which might be influenced by your level of education. So, so I want to I want to make that separate. Let's talk about that for a while. Um, in yeah. in the early uh, nineteen in the late nineteen forties, the early nineteen fifties, in terms of ownership and real estate holdings, uh, if we think about a lot of communities across the country, black communities, segregated communities, where they're were people who had communities that had high levels of of home ownership, land ownership, farms, etc. 
and we move across the 50s, 60s, and 70s, there were some things that went on. Uh, One, people are familiar with Tulsa. People are familiar with Rosewood. People are familiar with with, um, uh, Palm Beach. People are familiar with a number of communities that uh, Wilmington, uh, of which you are one of the the um, featured narrators in uh, Wilmington yeah, I'm, on I'm Fire. Yeah, I'm one of the one of the talking heads. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have seen the film uh, three times now, um, and if, for those of you who are listening, if you have not seen it, uh, we have done a number of shows about the film Wilmington on Fire. And uh, it is available for uh, DVD purchase if it is not in your community. And you can go onto our Facebook page or you can go to Wilmington on Fire Facebook page and you can find out how you can purchase it. And I recommend it should be one of your Kwanzaa gifts if you're gift-giving this season. But but one of the things that happen in addition to to whole communities being um, ruptured economically, is that when there was, and this is something, uh, Sandy, I've been dying to talk with you about, when there was some wealth transfer from one generation to the next, you ran into, people ran into um, public policies, uh, the issue of just simply racial terrorism uh, by the government, where they lost their land, they lost uh, through eminent domain. I, and I'm really thinking about um, communities like in Miami, communities in many communities in North Carolina, especially around Greensboro, and uh, where you are in in uh, Durham. Um, and, 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 and it was in the South where people lost their potential for creating wealth and have not yeah. Yeah. recovered. I, I, you know, I, that, 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 that's, that's critical. I, I would actually start the story, though, with the aftermath of slavery and the uh-huh. failure to fulfill the promise of 40 acres and a mule, the promise that was made to the, the formerly enslaved folk. And uh, so that was the starting point, so that the ex-slaves come out of the period of slavery without any financial stake of any significance in the society. And then over the course of the next 30 to 40 years, black folks accumulate approximately 15 million acres of land in the South. Now, had 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 the ex-slaves received 40 acres and a mule, the amount of land that would have been owned and held by the ex-slaves would have been closer to 40 to 45 million acres, substantially more. But... Uh, it, it, in some ways, it was really a remarkable accomplishment that the formerly enslaved folks accumulated as much as 15 million acres. But then there was a process of, of, of destruction of that, 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 that wealth. 
and uh, and that that process includes the events that you were talking about, the the white massacres that took place in places like Wilmington, North Carolina, in 1898, in Rosewood in 1923, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in 1921, where uh, prosperous black communities were literally extinguished. Uh, and, uh, and so as a consequence, that wealth was destroyed. But frequently black folks' land was either appropriated or seized by white terrorists. Uh, that was one of the activities that was, was engineered by various iterations of the Ku Klux Klan was to drive black folks off of their property. And so, uh, so to the extent that the uh, American government or state-level government did not in, interfere or prevent those types of actions from taking place, then they're fully complicitous. And we can talk about this, the, the terrorism as in some sense being state-sponsored. Now, mm-hmm. uh, there's also, um, in addition to the loss of land, there, there, the period in which the federal government made the greatest commitment to building uh, prosperity in the middle class was a period in which blacks were actively excluded from access to those kinds of opportunities. So I'm thinking specifically of uh, the way in which uh, racial, racial, racial discrimination was exercised in the provision of the GI Bill, how racial discrimination was exercised in the use of federal funds to provide home loan mortgages. This is particularly the case in the 1950s and 1960s. And so uh, those mechanisms which provided the greatest boost to white Americans in making a transition from having very low levels of wealth to having more solid levels of wealth, those, those, uh, those, those policies actively excluded black folks. And so mm-hmm. there, let's, there's a long Cindy, let's long highlight some of, of that. Policies. I'm sorry? Let's highlight some of that because uh, here in Boston, and you're familiar with Boston, uh, one of the things that is is just so clear is that white wealth was accumulated by veterans when they came back from World War II because there was uh, public housing that was set aside, especially essentially for veterans but not black veterans right right and and then you also mentioned uh you also mentioned communities like durham and the city of miami's black communities that had business districts that were destroyed and that that occurs in the aftermath of the 1940s with a set of highway construction policies, federal highway construction right. policies where That's right. uh, where the highways are run right through the heart of, of black business districts and so it's mm-hmm. effectively destroying them also. So, mm-hmm. I'd say yeah, that that I mean, happened from Washington, D.C., all the way down the East Coast going all the way into Miami. And then yes. even previous to that, where there were established black communities that were thriving, uh, it was the East Coast Railroad um, and the kind of predatory public policy that went on for that railroad to be taken down to Florida so this man could 
take his wealthy friends in the winter to Palm Beach and stay at the Mar-a-Lago. Mar uh, <laughs> you know, I get very, I, I get very frustrated by all of this. But even <laughs> as we talk about Sandy, the the notion so, so are of you, predatory. Are you, specific, are you talking specifically about Flagler, Henry Flagler? Yes. 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 Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And and not only was he taking them to uh, to to the uh, to the, the the beaches of of South Florida, but he was taking them on into Cuba, where uh, yes. he was one of the people where who they was could instrumental catch the boat in right the, there. Right. I mean, if if we that if we a... see the movie Godfather Part Two and we look at the kind of uh, nightlife vacation playground that Cuba was before the revolution. Uh, yes. That's largely a consequence of Henry Flagler's business activity. That's right, and and, and the whole the whole um, island of Palm yeah. Beach, and the and and staying on the coast down into Miami and to Key West, where somewhere between Miami and Key West is where you got the boat, the the ship. To, to go over to Cuba and party for the weekend or and gamble for the the week and conduct business on behalf of American corporations, which is why the revolution took place in the first place, and uh we can never ever dismiss the import of what Fidel Castro did in Cuba. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I would add that there's an, another interesting piece of that story, which is essentially to have the rights to run the railroad down into Florida. Flagler essentially bribed the Florida state legislature. It, absolutely. You know, I, I don't know if you and I have talked about this before, but uh, you, you know that I'm a native of West Palm Beach, Florida. And so okay. I know all of the Flagler history. And my <laughs> grandfather, my grandfather was a real estate, uh, in the real estate business uh, in West Palm Beach. But when he first arrived in Palm Beach, most of the black people lived on the island of Palm Beach. It was called the Sticks. And they had to come into West Palm Beach by boat from that island because there was no bridge. But, of course, when Flagler came down, they built the bridge. But they also <laughs> burned out all the black people who had farms on the island of Palm Beach. My grandfather happened to own 125 acres of pineapple wow. farm in on the island of Palm Beach, very near uh, Mar Largo. Wow. If Mar Largo yeah. wasn't part of it before the Post family purchased but they burned the black people out. Out, yeah. That's how Flagler yeah. got that land. Because most of the black people who lived in the sticks couldn't afford to reconstruct uh their property because it was so costly to bring materials from the mainland over to the island. Island, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that so, another example. Uh, yeah, another yeah, example Exactly So one of the things In terms of this intergenerational Wealth transference That never happens that, that, that happened And people really need to understand That it did happen 
had to do with public policy relative to education and where segregated um, schools were were being located when they were finally provided, and the other is how the financial institutions and communities, just as today, colluded with the government to ensure that black people lost their lands. Lands, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So, yeah, it's just... um, uh, it's an incredible story, and 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 in my mind, uh, Dr. Darity, it hasn't really been told yet, because it, it it if you look at at Tulsa, for instance, um, how the banks refused, the insurance companies refused to finance the rebuilding of the black communities and the black businesses. In Tulsa, that happened everywhere. It, was, it certainly happened at Rosewood, because even the the uh, people who make the wood to build buildings—what do you call those people? Anyway, I'm getting too old for doing this. Okay. Um, <laughs> they um, refused the lumber yards. Refused oh, okay. to provide the black people lumber to rebuild in Rosewood. Wood, yeah. Because yeah. they needed that property to di- they needed where the black community was to bring in the first highways. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. um so in terms of this inequity, this 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 wealth gap that we have, one of the things I want to emphasize for people is that Something you said a few mo- a few minutes ago is the idea that we think, well, we must not be doing the right thing. We maybe we need to go to Tony Robbins, or maybe we need to do some do better. Let's talk right. about that for a while in terms of building wealth and and the gap that we find ourselves in. And the other is, please don't call up here, y'all, and tell me about. What's the man's name? LeBron James is a millionaire, uh, and two other people <laughs> that you can name, <laughs> because it is irrelevant. <laughs> How many right, of them right. are are there, uh, Sandy? How many millionaires, well, uh, black millionaires, well, well, are there in this country? Yeah, well, but the, the, the key point is that you know that that those folks are outliers, and yes. actually we have. We have far fewer black outliers, relatively speaking, to the numbers of white outliers. But what we do in our research is we look at people who have the average characteristics of each group. And that's, that's what we really should be looking at. And, and actually, mm-hmm. that's, that's a very powerful indicator uh, because the odds of any individual black person becoming a billionaire in comparison with any individual white person, it's much, much lower. Uh, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But also the odds of any black person having the average level of wealth that's held by the typical white household is, is very low also. So, so, you know, Mm -hmm. in, in terms of, you know, us doing the right thing, 
that's the key point of our, our study that's called Umbrellas Don't Make It Rain. This is a study that was done uh, in conjunction with other members of our research team on the National Asset Scorecard okay. for Communities of Color project. Okay. So it includes uh, Derek Hamilton, who is an economist. Who is an our school. common ground voice. Yes, and then Ann Price, who is the director of the Insight Center for Community Economic Development in California. Um, And so um, in that particular report, uh, we find three major things. The first is that whites who are unemployed have a higher level of wealth than blacks who are working full-time. The second thing we find is that blacks who are in the third quintile, that is the 60th percentile of the income distribution, have less wealth than whites who are in the first quintile or the 20th percentile of the income distribution. And then what I refer to as the most damning finding of all is that blacks with a college degree have $10,000 less in net worth than whites who never finished high school. So, you know, by doing the right things, any individual black person probably will be better off than other black folks, but they will not close the wealth gap with white Americans. Mm-hmm. What does it mean, uh, Dr. Darity, if this gap I mean, it will continue to be to be widened, but what does it mean in terms of, I mean, it will take us a, a thousand years uh, if nothing changes from our realities of the day, of today. Yeah, so, so what does it mean? It, it means that if we are truly concerned about changing the conditions of wealth inequality in America, not only uh, racial wealth inequality, but general wealth inequality. Because, you know, even if we look at the white population in isolation, there are huge, huge differences in the wealth positions among whites. It's just that, uh, that they are on average considerably wealthier than black folks. But if, if we're really serious about addressing that, it means that we are going to have to construct some measures for redistribution of wealth. This is not something that people can change or alter on the basis of their own behavior or their own decisions. There really needs to be a shock to the system where families that are, are, are wealth-deprived are given additional assets so that they can start off on a different foundation. Mm-hmm. Now, we we have talked numerous times about uh, your proposal relative to baby bonds, and we're, and I want to talk to you about that. But I want to tell people who are listening to us that you need to hold on because one of the reasons that I am always talking about our spirit of believing in each other and believing that our history can hold us uh, in pause so that we can get it together is because 
we need to understand that we are the we have been the victims here. Did you hear Dr. Darity say you can't educate yourself, you can't work yourself, you cannot smile yourself and 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 play basketball for um, for a thousand years, hoping that all of that will bring us to a point where we are not looking up through a huge wealth disparity gap. That can't happen. So we're going to have to steal our backs and say somebody owes us something. And that's why I talk about reparations all the time. We are owed something. And Darity and his band of economic angels, they're going to figure out the formula about how that happens. And they call, and Dr. Darity calls it baby bonds. Tell us about baby bonds. Well, I, 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 I want to be clear. Baby bonds and reparations are not the exact same thing. The same, yeah. They're not, no. So I reparations want both of them. Is, <laughs> yeah, so do I. <laughs> reparations is a program... <laughs> Reparations is a program to compensate African Americans for the injustices of slavery, of Jim Crow, and for ongoing racism and discrimination. So, uh, so one of the effects of an effective reparations program could be to substantially close the racial wealth gap, depending upon how the reparations program was administered. But the baby bonds proposal was actually a universal proposal for all Americans. So the idea here is that every child that's born in the United States would receive a federally funded trust fund. So, um, you know, wealthy families give their kids an endowment. And so the premise here is that every family's child should receive an endowment. And the amount of the endowment that would be provided to each child would depend on the wealth position of their parents. So for families that are extraordinarily wealthy, we would still give them, the children, a trust fund, but it would be about $50. On the other hand, for families whose children are born into the lowest end of the wealth distribution, we'd give them a fifty dollars to $60,000 trust fund. So this is for Sandy? all Americans. Yes. Sandy, we can't hear you. Yes. Oh, you can't okay, hear me. Okay, you were, yeah, all of a sudden you went out. Okay, can you hear me now? Yes, I can. You were saying okay. that families of wealth would, their kids would get fifty dollars. Everybody would get something. Everybody would get but something. Families, the families, uh-huh. the families that are extremely wealthy, that we'd give their kid a fifty dollar trust fund. So it would be symbolic because it's a universal program. But for families whose children are born at the lowest end of the wealth distribution, those children would receive trust funds of fifty to sixty thousand dollars. And so and that we'd have a birth. distribution. That would be at birth. That would be at, we could uh-huh. The trust would be held until they reach adulthood, and we would guarantee a 1% real rate of interest on the accounts. And so uh, the first wave of kids who receive this, the first payments would not really be made until they are 18 years of age. Mm-hmm. So, so there would be so would- uh, basically... Essentially, yeah, it works years. like Social Security, except for yeah. there's an interest attached to it. 
it, it would it would work like Social Security with an interest rate attached to it, but essentially it would be the objective would be to provide Social Security across the lifetime. So this is a, a Social Security payment in a sense that each child in America would receive upon adulthood to give them the opportunity to build their wealth through using these resources to acquire uh, acquire. Uh, acquire assets of their own. Mm-hmm. So you know, now, they have talked use... about this before. Yeah. Before the the Obama administration. Yeah. Um, did he get an opportunity to be briefed about this proposal? I have no idea. <laughs> okay. I don't know. Yeah. So, <laughs> okay. It certainly wasn't briefed by me. And it certainly was, your, is your proposal, you've been writing about this since 2009. <laughs> but, um, you see, here is a problem that, that I have. I have two problems here. I have people who are listening to us tonight who are saying, oh, hell, that's not ever going to happen, and blah, and Uh, They'll just throw it away on Nike sneakers and, you know, I I mean, a host of reasons why not. But on the other hand, I have problems with the Black Caucus, and we talked about this before, the Black Caucus and other black misleadership Negro whisperers and, and that whole cadre of people who have the ability to advance. I just lost you. Uh, okay. I'm sorry, I didn't hear it. you. I just lost you, but you're back. Okay. I think yeah, yeah. You were talking about the Negro misleadership was the last thing I heard. Yes. Um, the, the idea, and, and you know, and and that's backed up by this whole idea of people who believe, and you know, you are out there, and you might as well come clean about it. That I own a house, I own a car, I got a job, and I have five hundred dollar disposable money in the bank. Who believe that that's security? Yeah. So we've got to figure out a way of articulating what what I I mean I mean we've I've been talking with you since 2009 and I have to figure out a way of how we get this baby boomer concept in the right hands and. Every time I think about how we do that, uh, it seems like something else happens, like uh, the man who uh, would be who thinks he's king gets elected, or the African American president uh, somehow he doesn't get a briefing on this, and this is one of the most progressive solutions to the issue of black. Uh, economic inequality in this country, uh, and 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 he hasn't been briefed about it by the people who have 
conceptualized it. So how do we begin to talk about this as part of the public discourse? So around I think I think it has to be it has to be a component of any agenda for change that is promoted today and promoted in the face of the consequences of the recent election, but should have been promoted under previous administrations. Uh, I know that the baby bonds idea is a component of both the Black Lives Matter and the BYP 100 agendas for, uh, mm-hmm. for American social policy. So we just have to keep pushing for it. I think that politically, because of the current environment, maybe there would be routes to implementing this as more or less of a demonstration project in certain municipalities, and that uh-huh. once it's demonstrated to be something that's effective, we could more strongly make the case for the change at a national level, particularly, uh, hopefully, if we're beyond the period of the, the Trump presidency or the Trump-like presidency or, or a Pence presidency, if, if Trump is not actually installed as president. So, um, you know, if, if we're beyond that period, then we might have an opportunity to really, really implement this at the national level. But in the meantime, I think we need to find ways in which we can actually do this at a local or municipal level and be able Mm -hmm. then to make a case that it's demonstrably an effective policy. Mm -hmm. And that it is viable. For instance, as you're talking, you know, I spent the greater part of my career in corporate America, and one of the things that I'm thinking is that all of the companies that are sucking up the resources in certain large in certain large uh metro areas that they could be the impetus for instance have we talked to cook at apple have we talked to gates uh have, at you know who have we talked to in that circle maybe we ought to talk to twitter because twitter wasn't invited i don't know the guy's name the ceo of twitter wasn't invited to talk with the donad uh, last week at the tech summit. So maybe, I mean, at some point we've got to start making sure that thinking people who have a significant investment in the future, which is not going to be the White House at this point, the future of this country begin to lift up this concept to save, I mean, it is in their interest that some salvation come our way. Well, I mean, I guess that's the tough question. Is is it in their interest? Well, you know, I've 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 uh, I've had a uh, side seat. <laughs> in a number of major boardrooms 
And uh, I think that there are people who don't talk about it in the way that you and I talk about it or people who are listening to Our Common Ground on Saturday night. I think that there are some people who would entertain the concept simply because they could see that it's in their interest. Okay. Um, I hope you're right. (laughs) Yeah, I, I just I just do, and it's got to be the right people, you know, and we need to be calling out people who are sitting on boards uh, to ensure, you know, that's going to be my new career, you know. I'm looking for two board seats. <laughs> come, come next December, I'm looking for two board seats. But um, that it that if we put together the right partnership, for instance, in Boston, uh, if we put together the right partnerships uh, and <clears throat> we get advocates like the mayor, a few members of the city council, a few members of the state legislature, I just finished a campaign for uh, one of the new mem- newest members who's 27 years old, at uh, the Massachusetts Senate uh, to begin to have forums, baby bond forums, to talk about this in and formulate um, the um, the PowerPoint presentation, which shows them why it is in their interest in their to interest. advance such a public policy. Um, we have many, uh, and, and many of you know it, we have plenty of uh, corporations that uh, buy old theaters and restore them because they want to have a, a, a standing within the community, um, all of the other stuff that they have in, uh, invested in has not worked. Uh, and I, I do think that We've got to start somewhere, and that might be a possible place. I'm not saying that it would work in all places, but you're yeah. right. This is a government. This is a government policy, and I just, Sandy, I really don't see it being something for which this current administration um, would even understand. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I, I don't disagree with that, and that's why I'm saying that uh, that this was something that would need to be uh, would need to be tried at a local level, uh, and you know, maybe Boston would be an ideal setting to to try this. I, I you, you mentioned a, a number of organizations that might be interested. I, I, you, you mentioned the governor might be interested. But also, I guess there's an organization. No, this black governor would not be interested. Not the your mayor current governor. might be interested, but not the current governor. The governor. You know, we okay. have Charlie okay. Baker, who previously was with um, Blue Cross Blue Shield. But okay. um, I, I do think that there are enough people like you who understand uh, the metrics of all of this. Uh, and how it lends itself 
into a rebuilding of America. Because well, I mean, if people if, if people genuinely believe in some notion that we want everybody to have the opportunity to engage in American society, even you know, I could use the the uglier term, compete in American society then we need to make certain that every child actually has uh, the kind of social stake that would enable them to fully participate in the society. So, uh, yeah, so, I mean, this is a way of actually protecting and preserving talent that otherwise will be destroyed or lost as a consequence of the, 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 the stressful lives that people live when they do not have adequate resources, when they have to worry about where their next meal comes from or whether they can meet the rent payments and so on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I think that we have to move away from, and I've been working real hard on this program to help people ju- do just that, and that is the notion of all of the myths that we perpetuate about why we have no wealth in our community. Um, And people, you know, the the, the little silly things like, oh, yeah, we don't save any money. Well, you know, the thing is that if you've got such dire income uh, inequalities and issues of parity and equity in employment, uh, people who are having to leave their jobs or lose their minds, which, you know, something I understand, but since I lost my mind years ago, I'm not possibly just leaving my job. (laughs) I'll just be crazy. (laughs) I mean, uh, but one of the things we have to do is we have to have a solid uh, on these kinds of issues because we are we cannot save our way out of this. Yeah. We cannot yeah. educate our way out of this. You can get a thousand PhDs and that's not gonna change the black wealth gap in America. Right. So I'm also thinking about Sandy, something that um I've been kind of looking to ask, you know, the brainiacs of the world, and you're one of the head brainiacs in the world, is the idea of what we do about people as they come out of prison. We give them $25 or $49 or something and a brown paper bag with some bananas in it. I think that one of the things we've got to do is change that especially for men and women who have families. Uh, We've got to change our housing policy in regard to prohibiting um, uh, uh, felons from living in public housing and receiving housing assistance. We've got got so many things. This is how uh, what I call the economic terror chamber that America Mm -hmm. has set up. And it's systematic. Uh, And we've got to think a a lot about how our 
credit system. And, and you and I talked about this before, uh, the notion that credit card companies and banks are the ones who establish the policy regarding how credit is rated and scored. Yeah. 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 All of those things lend uh, lend itself to the economic disparities. Um, but one of the questions I have for you, and I know you ha- you're going to have to leave soon, uh, is the issue of in looking at health disparities. Um, what's your take on what this Congress might do regarding the American Health Care Act? Okay, as so, known so as before, Obamacare. Before, before I come go to ahead. that, I want to go back to your comment about about folks who have been formerly incarcerated. Okay. So there's an, there's another proposal that Derek Hamilton and I have been trying to promote for a number of years, which I think would would in a significant way address those kinds of problems. Uh, you know, folks who've been previously incarcerated have a very difficult time finding employment, and if they're black, they have virtually an impossible time finding employment. Uh, our our veterans frequently have especially our younger veterans frequently have difficulty finding employment uh and then we know that uh in terms of racial discrimination uh that the unemployment rate for blacks at each level of education is two times as high as it is for whites and that blacks with some college education actually have a higher unemployment rate than whites who never finished high school so there's a number of communities in our society who are uh, are plagued by unduly high levels of unemployment. And so uh, I, I would think that the way in which we solve that is by having a federal employment guarantee. That is to say that the federal government guarantees or assures that every American citizen has a right to a publicly sector-provided job. These are jobs that could be devoted to building the human infrastructure and the physical infrastructure of the society. Uh, so, so it would not only be a matter of building bridges and highways, but it would be a matter of provision of quality child care. It would be a matter of the provision of additional educational services. It could be the provision of elder care, quality elder care. Okay. Uh, so uh, what, what, and, and folks would, of course, have to be trained to do these jobs. But, uh, but if, we, if we could ensure that everyone had access to a job, then folks who had been previously incarcerated, for example, uh, would be able to step directly into an employment opportunity as soon as they came out of, out of imprisonment after they completed their terms. So, um, so, so, so I just wanted to say that there is, there are some there are some ideas that I think would be helpful for addressing the kinds of problems that are addressed by uh, are faced by folks who have who are ex felons. Um, and then the, the the other issue you raised is is the question of what's going to happen to the Affordable Care Act. Well, I, I think it's it seems to be fairly transparent that the uh, that the upcoming uh, Republican Congress is going to try to gut it. To whatever extent they can. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know what to say beyond that. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I never thought the Affordable Care Act was ideal because I'm in favor of some type of single-payer system or uh, providing everyone through a federal job guarantee with access to the same quality of health insurance that's provided to all public employees in the United States at the federal level. Uh, that would compel the private sector to at least provide the same level of uh, of benefits for anybody who is working for them, because otherwise they'll take the public sector job. So, um, so, but, but I, I, I'm in favor of that. But I guess you know there is there's some case that can be made that the Affordable Care Act is better than what we had before but I, I suspect it will not survive the upcoming regime. Mm-hmm. What what I'm thinking is everything was better than what we have now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm really scared, Sandy, and I I mean I um I have not felt the kind of stress and anxiety that I feel about where where we're headed here and what's going to happen. You know, I have grandchildren, um, and um, I really have been kind of grieving what their future is going to look at as they go into becoming young adults. But before you go, let me ask you how people like us here at Our Common Ground, people who are poor, we go to work, we come home, we try to make ends meet, and we understand what these issues are. Uh, how do we connect with um, those people, with, you, with, with, with academia who's working on these issues? And I have been, for the last year, purporting, here at Our Common Ground that the thing that we must do is we must build a political empowerment mechanism locally. I even took three three months off mm-hmm. um, from the air to devote my time to building a, a structure so that there is civic education, voter education, the whole nine yards, um, here in Boston working with a a couple of groups. So how do we connect? I mean, you've got baby bonds. You're also talking about employment uh, guarantees, uh, state employment guarantees, government employment guarantees. How do we connect as a community with black economists, um, like you, people in academia who are doing the social policy, the economic policy, how do we do that? How do we connect with you? You can have a, you can well, have a show on our common ground. <laughs> well, 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 that, well, that was you know actually that was the first thing I was going to say that one way of connecting with us is 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 what you're doing tonight by giving me a platform to talk about some of the ideas that I have in mind. And and to also receive criticisms about those ideas, so uh, this this is you know this is a big help. Uh, I'm personally I'm also 
on on uh, Twitter, as you know, and I don't have mm-hmm. much of a filter, as you know. Uh, but yeah. you know, that's another avenue to try to connect with folks. I also, you know, have found it very useful when I have the opportunity to actually write about these ideas in uh, in 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 uh, periodicals or in news outlets that reach a wider audience than the standard academic audience. Uh, so there, 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 there are quite a few of us who, who very much want to be uh, engaged and involved with the wider public in terms of considering these ideas, these ideas that we think might be bolder policies for change. Uh, particularly uh, ideas that might be implemented at a municipal or city level. Uh, you know, one of the uh-huh. things that I was thinking is that um, there's there's a few states and cities that have adopted the $15 minimum wage, uh, the fight for 15, and so yes. that's not something that's occurred at the national level, but there are communities that have made the decision that they want to do that. Now, I think there's some limits to the minimum wage, but I'm, you know, very much in favor of that. But the, the there are two limits. Uh, if you don't have a job at all, your minimum wage effectively is zero. And the existence of a minimum wage does not ensure a sufficient number of hours of work to keep people from falling into poverty. Right. So, but what so it does that's, do, and that's this one, is my criticism yeah. of how we don't synchronize public policy, and that is for some people, especially in Massachusetts where we are going to have a $15 minimum wage come January 1st, is that will disqualify them, make them ineligible for resources that they need to continue to try to build an economic viability for their family. Yeah. 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 I'm yeah. really afraid yeah. of that. That that possibility, yeah. $2 yeah. So, away from making $2 more than makes you eligible for public housing can kill a family. Right. So this is the reason why, you know, any of these kinds of policies, like a minimum wage or – some people are talking about having a basic income guarantee. They must be adopted in conjunction with a job guarantee and a job guarantee that provides people with compensation at wages and benefits that would put them above the poverty line. Yes, yes. Well, Dr. William Dougherty, who is on Twitter at Sandy Dougherty, and um you can do a Google search and find him everywhere. <laughs> but we have posted, if you go to our event page at our Common Ground for tonight's episode, you will find YouTube, um, articles, papers, all written by, and articles. You just recently wrote an article uh, about what the Trump administration is going to mean. Can you give us a little summary of that before you leave? Yeah, this was an interview that was done with me by uh, Jillian White at The Atlantic. And so I talked, uh, she asked a series of questions about what I anticipated might happen under the, the Trump administration. And uh, 
you know, uh, you know, I guess, I guess the question was what would happen to black wealth? And, uh, the, the only thing I could conclude is that nothing positive would, would necessarily happen to black wealth. Uh, you know, the policies that Trump has, has talked about are what I describe as, uh, gilding the ghetto measures, which are very uh-huh. similar to uh-huh. the kinds of policies that Richard Nixon advocated, which is really a kind of a business development strategy for the ghettos of America or whatever people think ghettos are. Uh, but business development strategies fairly often do not reach the folks who are most in need. Um, and, uh, the way in which business development has occurred in predominantly black communities recently than to effectively drive the initial residents of the community out altogether. And I guess we refer to that as gentrification. So, uh, so I'm not particularly optimistic, but, but those are measures that don't really have direct implications for black wealth uh, or, or for improving or enhancing black wealth. They are measures that might have some implications for black, uh, black employment and black income. Uh, but, uh, I, you know, I'm not particularly optimistic. I, I will say this. The thing that I actually fear the most about the new administration is the trafficking in lies. And uh, I'm really nervous that we are moving into a period where there's going to be a control on the types of information that we receive from the government either certain kinds of information is going to be eliminated or it's going to be distorted. Uh, And so uh, we really have the possibility for a a very comprehensive shift to a climate that doesn't give much space for what we are accustomed to calling democracy. And I guess to me, that's the most frightening, that's the most frightening thing about the, the current the current trajectory. Mm-hmm. I've just yeah. never lived in a third world country before, um, and <laughs> I'm going to have to make some. Uh, I've been well, trying to figure you know, out. Uh, I, I think I think uh, Chile under the generals may be something that mm-hmm. we want to look at because that seems to be the direction where we might be going in. We're headed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we are certainly proud and. Uh, so grateful for the work you and your colleagues are doing relative to um, economic disparities uh, for black people in this country because for so long we were without the data. We were kind of like we knew what was going on, but we weren't sure. Uh, <laughs> and... Um, and so I, I thank you so very much. And you've got to come back more. I tried to get Derek Hamilton, and I know he's out of the country. Um, yeah, he's in, he's in the, India. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, I actually sent him a, uh, an email asking him if he could come and co-host with me tonight. But we'll do that. Um, okay. I think that it is time for us, and I'm going to try to pull together – uh, a panel of black talkers to start talking about, and I tried to do that before, to start talking about this baby bond concept because it's our only way out. It's our um, 
40 acres and a mule 200 years too late. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so thank, well, you thank you very you for much for joining us. And um, we'll have to do this more often. When I go back on the five nights a week schedule, you'll hear from me more. Okay, this, great. This one, one, one night a week is killing me because I can't keep my flow going. <laughs> <laughs> you have a great holiday with your family. You and, uh, by the way, I did want to mention, um, since the last time you were here, you lost your uh, beloved father. Uh, yes. And uh, you were in our prayers. Thank you. Thank and you. thank you so very much. Thank you, Janice. That was okay, good night. Dr. W- Go ahead. Thought you had dropped. I think he has dropped. You're listening to Our Common Ground. I am going to take a break. We blew through our uh, top of the hour break, and we are glad to have you with us. And when we come back, We'll talk to you more about wealth, disparities, in, in, um, and take your calls. We're going to open up our mics at 347-838-9852. Uh, I know I haven't given you much time to really talk about where we're headed with this new administration and what's going on, and I do invite your comments, 347-838-9852. We'll be right back. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. wake up the entire African-American community to the hidden issue of mental health. It showed up in my life through one of my best friends. And we've been friends for over 30 years. One story at a time. If we would have known earlier, you know, we would have been more, much more supportive with her. Once I reached out to my sister, it got a little better. Once I told my mother, it got a little better. The more I talked about it, I felt it coming off. The healing is in me, and the healing in a journey can also be extended to others. It's our community and our mental health. Giving voice to what you're feeling is part of the healing. If you're strong enough to just open your mouth, that's all it takes. And the most revolutionary and healing thing that black people can do right now is to love one another. It's time to share ourselves. Healing starts with us. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services the Ad Council, and the Stay Strong Foundation. You're listening to... Media, the I Declare Show, home of real world right now talk media, and indeed, I declare it, no matter what, know your value. No matter what, know you matter. Who are we, the American people, to want, I don't know, some clean air and some clean water? God forbid... Oh, let's see. Anti-education, Pell Grant, screw it. If you can't afford to get in, you ain't getting in. That's the uh, Repub motto. And, of course, the anti-woman. 
Small government, small government, small government, vote for me. Small government, small government, small government, vote for me. I don't want the government involved in anything unless you have a uterus. If you have a uterus, Ronnie, we are, look, we can't get far up enough in the I Declare Show. Real Raw Right Now Talk Media, I Declare It. The I Declare Show. Tuesdays, 9 p.m., Blog Talk Radio. I Declare It. Because our society is only as strong as all its individuals, the United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers, but we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers, but we need more. Thousands of teachers and biologists, but we need more. And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, We had better educate every single person who has the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. studios 
And on January, uh, the next Saturday, we will be off. We won't be coming back on the air until January 7th live. And on January whatever 31st or December 31st or whatever New Year's is, we encourage you to join um, December 31st. Uh, which is New Year's Eve, India Declare here at Blog Talk Radio for her annual Pajama Fabulous New Year's Eve party, and I am going to be on the set. India, India is in our in our chat room, uh, so I'm going to be on the set. But on um, that date. On uh, the 31st, we will be with India Declare uh, over at the I Declare show in our glitter fabulous pajamas because she requires that uh, to um, bring in the new year. Um, You know, on this issue of metrics, it's really important, and our number is three four seven eight three eight nine eight five two. If you'd like to join us, and I'm I'm, I'm so sorry, six four six, you uh, held up your hand to talk to Dr. Darity before, uh, right before he had to leave. Uh, he had a, um, he has a family engagement in the morning, and he needed to uh, leave us kind of early, but. One of the things that we need to understand is that there are a number of pieces of the the black wealth gap, the the black wealth gap, the black uh, economic disparities in this country that we face uh, that we can we, we can really push at. One of them is stricter enforcement of housing anti-discrimination laws. Uh, We need um, to authorize Fannie Mae and Fannie Mac to reduce mortgage principal and make other loan modifications for struggling homeowners. We need to lower the cap on the mortgage interest tax deductions, and we need policies, public policies, which will decrease insurance companies' ability to just hijack people on uh, mortgage insurance. We need to do that. Those are things that we can begin to, um, to work on right now. And, okay, let's look at another one. Uh, in addition to attainment gaps, the returns to college education differ across racial and, and ethnic, group, ethnic groups. However, we need to make sure that education policies, whether it be educational loans, whether it be the kind of programs that are offered in our college, shapes the kind of strategies that we need for education to matter and not just be a big hole of debt. At the medium, a white family sees a return of 
$55,869 in wealth from completing a four-year college degree, while the medium black families attained just a small fraction turned somewhere around $4,800, These are all issues having to do with policy, public policy, public policy. Uh, and this whole idea about it, it took 400 years of slavery, segregation, and institutionalized discrimination in the labor and housing markets to build the wealth gap that black people see today. I'll give you an example. By the time the Fair Housing Act made discrimination in housing illegal in 1968, black people had missed out on decades of really, really robust growth in the housing market. Um, And much of the next generation missed out on that wealth building in the 20 years it took to fully implement the law. Um, <clears throat> the the racial wealth ga- wealth divide is how the past shows up in the present. We have a deep legacy of wealth inequality that undermines the whole idea. And Dr. Darity and I were talking about that tonight. That we have a meritocracy. That's that there's an equal playing field. The whole idea. It undermines the whole idea. Uh, the racial gap continu- continues to grow not only because of income inequality. Whites have more dollars to sock away. Most black people don't have any money. You know, we, we, we run around with all these myths. Black people spend their money on sneakers. Well, some black people do because, you know, you know it's like sometimes you get an idea, well, um, I don't have uh, enough money to pay the, the bill, so I'll just spend on something else. Oh, well. And this whole idea, I want to talk to you about the whole idea of how we get our our our, our economic Stability gets undermined by fees. You know, the fees where you're um, you don't pay the the one bill, and so they put some more money on the bill. That's predatory. That's not how this country ought to work. Okay, so. I'm opening up the line to talk about this new administration. Our number is 347-838-9852 to talk about how you are perceiving what is happening here. We have a man who who thinks he's king, who thinks it's more important to meet with Kanye. What did you all think about? Okay. Kanye, Jim Brown, all up in Trump Towers. How? What, what kind of craziness was that? So 
Kanye West. Point is an asylum. All the crazy people meet. We have a cabinet whose mission is going to be to undo. And and Newt Gingrich, did you hear Newt Gingrich this week say it? He said it on Fox News. I don't listen to Fox News, but I I heard it through the grapevine, India. <laughs> that he he said on Fox News that the Trump administration's mission is to dismantle everything put into place by FDR and anybody else who created an infrastructure for advancing those programs. So they're looking to privatize the post office. They're looking to privatize um, Social Security. They're willing. They're looking to eliminate parts of Medicare. They're looking to ensure that a company's principles, like Exxon, who has gone through every country on the planet and terrorized their economic and cultural and environmental infrastructure, to now do it everywhere else. How are these people going to be well, I guess they're not going to be. They're going to unbe. And how are you going to survive it? What are you going to do? You know, on this show, I ask the question over and over and over. What is your end game? How are you going to press, preserve, maintain the public policies that are in place that ensures that your children at least get a half ragged ragged education. But, you know, I think that part of the problem is that many of us worry about me, not and, and believe that you are not part of the collective, that, you know, oh, I got a job, I got a house, I got a car. Um, and if I have all those things, then uh, I don't have to worry about it. The Trump administration cannot uh, touch me. Um and i think that we need to we need to begin to think through that we are all in this together because you've got a job today does not mean you're not you're going to have a job tomorrow and when you don't have a job and the house goes and the car goes and the children can't go to the private schools anymore then what you going to do 
we've got to begin to think through how we are going to cope over the, you know, Sandy, I was surprised Sandy said it, but, you know, it might be true that we will end up with the President Pence in six months or in January. But I tell you what, Monday is not going to make any difference. The electors are not going to deliver or undeliver this president. There might be five or six, maybe 20 um, renegades, but you need 36. And there are going to be test march all over the country at state houses during the uh, session of the of the board of electors on Monday, but it's not going to make any difference because one of the things that I noticed over the last couple of ye- uh, couple of weeks has been that these people are behaving as though we don't have a president of the United States; they are the administration. That you know, I can't say his name. I just I, the donad. So you know who I'm talking about, right? I'm sure you know who I'm talking about. Uh, the donad is behaving as though he's already the president. So I'm not sure. Um, but what? What? You know. India, I don't want to ask this question. YJ, I don't want to ask this question. But where are the Democrats? Just please tell me where are the Democrats. Now they're pushing Tom Perez to be the chair of the DNC because they don't want Keith Ellison. And I don't want Keith Ellison because I think Keith Ellison needs to stay in the House and he needs to press about baby bonds and guaranteed state jobs, but he wants to be and thinks. But there has been no one, if you can recall in in our history, in the history of the DNC that has survived being the chair of the DNC. If Keith Ellison becomes the chair of the and I don't know I'm going over all the stuff. It's just so much stuff. It's stuff everywhere. Um, so I, I think one of the things that we have got to just hone in on, to focus on, to save us from the madness, is that we have got to begin to look at those places where we can affect change or at least create a shield around our people as a people. You know, for instance, uh, if you live in the rural area, if you live in the suburbs of, of major cities, have you asked a group of attorneys to begin to organize to ensure that we have some protection relative to how this new 
Homeland Security is going to be directing local police departments because it's going to happen. It is going to happen. Have we met on a local level to ensure that local police departments understand the kind of white supremacist organizations which are present? Wait a minute. I know I'm going all over the place because it's just so much. Did you all see what happened in North Carolina this week? Is is, is this man, I, I, these people, these people have really, really lost their minds. But he, when I asked the question of where are the Democrats, one of the reasons that I asked that question is because the Republicans are winning because they are bold. They are so bold that they live by the lies and the delusions and the hypocrisy that they articulate. I mean, they even even this Donan man, who he says stuff that he knows, and and don't be fooled. Do not, please do not be fooled that the donad does not know what he's doing. I want to ask you to put your hands over the ears of your children if there are children in the room. But we are dealing with the supreme administration of fuck you. And I'm wondering... For a man whose family has benefited, benefited so greatly economically uh, over the years, despises this country's self. If I was Donald Trump, I'd just be in front of the Trump Tower waving the flag and smiling and laughing and saying, you are all good people. But, you know, he threw his deplorables under the bus this week. And and that does not dismiss the very serious notion that, I mean, you all, if you, if you read French history, if you read English history, you understand that countries have had madmen who have become prime ministers and presidents. You understand that. If you look at Chile, if you look at the president of Chile, if you look at Putin, these are all very injured, mad, mentally deranged people. So it is not so foreign that we would think that this could not happen here. But I think and I am um, guessing at this. No, I'm not guessing. I'm just surmising. Let's surmise for a moment that we on we are on the precipice of the fall of this empire called America. I kind of looked at President Barack Obama's face 
And I was thinking that one of the things that he must be thinking about is all of the crap and trash and hurtful and just nasty stuff he had to put up with over the last eight years. All of this is overshadowing anything that he did good, and I'll be the first to say that he did not meet the needs of of, of the black community um, specifically, but particularly he did meet the needs of the white middle class. Is that a good way of kind of summarizing him up? But it doesn't even matter. Because we are so caught up in the madness of this new administration coming in. Can you imagine that even there was a woman in the news the other day, and I don't know who she was, she was questioning, a news reporter, questioning whether President Barack Obama was black at all that he was oh he wasn't a uh a african uh he was an arab as though that was saying oh he wasn't a rose he was a turd <laughs> i mean i i just get i can't even get real with this stuff i really cannot get real with it, and I'm going to go to 832. We've got five minutes in here. 832, 832, you're on the air. Thank you for your call. Uh, good evening, uh, Janice. Um, I had to call in. Uh, thank you. Uh, you made so many points, I don't even know where to start. Well, first I'll say uh, thank you for a great show. Dr. Darity is, 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 is fabulous, and we thank him for his many decades of uh, work uh, to uh, help all of us uh, mine our way through. I would say that we are in the left lane of the highway, no speed limit, and we are in the lane of the insane. And so we might as well. Please um, <laughs> get me laughing because I won't stop. I'm be, I mean, be laughing and crying all the time. It's hard to get your, your brain around it. I've been dealing <laughs> no. with this stuff since 1985, and I'm having a real hard time getting my brain around this. This is so. Uh, it is so tragically sick that you know that old saying: you have to laugh to keep from crying. Like that's what that's I'm doing. Right. But um, oh, this is Indian so please don't misinterpret my life. Yes, yes, I am. I am. Uh, I'm here with you. I have been listening. You have been trying. <laughs> you, you guys have been trying to bring sanity and reason uh, to an unreasonable and insane situation. And um, so I think that um, it's going to be very rocky. And as I said in your chat room. Um, uh, the, the the mindset clearly has to shift. Hopefully, with this new incoming administration, the administration will be so uh, so much like a lightning rod 
uh, that that in itself will be a catalyst to wake people up. But we are in uh, the left lane of the highway, no speed limit, no driver, uh, and, 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 um, and it's full throttle up. And so I yeah, believe yeah. that we, 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 we have to, this is going to galvanize, I believe this is going to galvanize like, like, like creative economics. Like we have to figure out a way to come together as communities, as networks, uh, and support each other. Because really for a while, I would say their, their entire agenda is about shrinking government for everyone else except themselves. And so we really need to look outside government for solutions, and that pretty much is a mirror um, turning the solutions, turning any and all solutions uh, for us as a collective uh, American populace uh, on ourselves. And, and, and maybe right. this will wake people up to say you, you really need to get engaged. You've been saying it for, what, almost 40 years? And so, you know, um, you, you know, people need to engage. And one thing about Mr. Trump, he does bring people, he totally has dominated the news cycle since he yeah. came down the escalator in the gaudy, gilded, you know, thing there, uh, I guess White House 2 now, uh, yeah. Trump Tower. Yeah. So, so, so yeah. it's gaudy, it's gilded, he's like Elvis, he's like a political Elvis, like he needs a cake. Like he needs like he right. needs like a like a you know, like a tiny right. gaudy cape, but I mean, but he's dominated all of this. He's he, yeah. I mean, he's like catnip for the media. He dominates yeah. the, the news cycle every day. The thing with Kanye, I'm like, you know what? He and Kanye have known each other. I'm just hoping that Kanye is an instrument and an avenue for you know positive dialogue. Yeah. Um, 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 uh, you know, issues involving our communities, issues involving mental yeah. health in our communities. Hopefully, Kanye can be constructive. But you're doing great work, and I hope everybody tunes in on Tuesday. So. I'm looking forward to your New Year's Eve uh, blowout on the I Declare yeah, show. Saturday. I said yeah, Tuesday. I got to yeah, run. Saturday. And thank yeah, you so yeah, much it's Saturday, for your call. And I hope everyone will join us. And you and I'm wishing you a very, very uh, happy holiday season. Absolutely. you the same. No matter what, no matter who, celebrate you. Join me Saturday evening, uh, 11 p.m. Eastern time, and we'll rock it out. Thanks, 11 Shannon. p.m., the I Declare yes, show. Um, I'm, I'm going out and buy me some pajamas, new pajamas tomorrow. Everybody, thank you so much for being with us uh, here at Our Common Ground. I'll see you in two weeks. Happy holidays to you and your family. Don't forget to concentrate on the Inguza Saba during this holiday season. Thank you for being with us tonight at Our Common Ground. We hope that you'll join us each Saturday night, 10 p.m., speaking truth to power and ourselves. To contact us, email us at ocginfo at ourcommonground.com and visit our website, ourcommonground.com. Join us on Facebook and Twitter at Janice OCG. 
and I'll be listening for you. We are living in a nation faced with the possibility of war on multiple mental and physical levels. We got black wars against the police. We still got crack wars in the streets. Unemployment at its peak. Overcrowded cells in present day hell. Wars of Jews against Muslims over whether a created state is real. Wars over Western with Saddam. American politicians arguing over the difference between smart and dirty bombs instead of smart children in dirty schools. I feel like it's me against the world and I'm starting to get ill without even thinking of Kim Jong. Though North Korea does have the world turning up on its access right now. With these signs of the time in mind, I wake up every day asking myself one question. And it takes me no less than 24 agonizing hours to answer. Am I gonna die today? I said, am I gonna die today? I don't even bother watching my back anymore because I might get killed from the side today. Or maybe they get me in nuclear with bombs dropping from the sky today. Or maybe some religious fanatic is gonna blow my behind up in a train station after deciding he wants to get closer to paradise today. Hell, I gotta wonder if some insane and depressed pilot whose wife just cheated on him and ran away with the kids is gonna fly today. Right into the 13th floor of my building where I just called my wife to tell her I gotta rise and pay. Or am I gonna get hit on some DWB while driving on I-95 today? Or maybe some crooked cop's gonna decide that so no good nigga's mom's gotta cry today? All this while wondering if Bush is gonna play chess if I lie today? Why today? Instead of thinking about all that today, I think I'm just gonna lose myself in the movement. The moment I own it, cause it might be time to go. It only takes one shot for cops to release my soul. Cause our community stopped by filthy 5-0 so. So I decided that I'm gonna fight today. Cause there's always just enough time left to be right today. See, I got kids looking up to me to take a stand against wars of Korea, Iraq, and Afghanistan today. So I gotta fight for the world to be safe for we. And this is also personal because I don't want my child to see my face next to the definition of complacency. I'm gonna fight this BS system with all of my might today. Because it's true that tomorrow will never die, but I might today. In a world where too many visionaries have become so hopeless that they're losing their sight today. And so many pedophiles and perverted priests out there that I gotta worry about whether my sons and daughters are gonna stay tight today. While Bush gives the rich tax cuts and the poor act cuts on educational spending, my students are depending on me to do what's right today. Looking down at the end of the tunnel, I woke up seeing the light today. Cause get this, nations may blow up entire other nations out of fright today. And though I got my cell phone on, I may not have enough time to call my mom to say goodbye today. Y'all may say I'm paranoid today, but inhaling historical truths has got me high today. So now I'm looking for heroines and heroes to help me stop our plight today. I'm even wondering if all the secondhand smoke finally gave me cancer today. So I called 911 for emergency assistance, but Bin Laden answered today. See, I just walked around thinking something's gonna get me. And I wonder why the hell you never found it if you're coming with me. So you just got to forgive me because I'm just recounting some of the signs of the times that we live in. Because if ignorance is bliss, I know some of y'all forgot the hell we done been in. Got me wondering if God's really gonna be forgiven for all of our sinning. Like killing each other in the name of religion. I don't know about y'all, but I'm gonna fight and never give in. So if I die before I lay my head to sleep today, I just pray to God my soul to keep today. Oh, wish you